Hey guys, and welcome back to the Skullcast for episode 51. We are all back here to talk about volume 10. We're still a ways away from the next episode coming out. I think it's the 26th, which is in two weeks from now. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I'm guessing it's going to be the inevitable Rickert and Griffith conversation. Been teased to us now for about four episodes. But we're not here to talk about that or even speculate about that because we need to get moving on uh, our reread project. Last time we had this conversation was episode 49, I believe, with volume 9, and that was a chock-full episode. And this section of the Golden Age is just – I mean, in my opinion, it's just insanely dense. It covers so much material so quickly, and there's so much to talk about every little scene. So we won't even beat around the bush. We'll just get moving. As always, I like to start these out with talks about the, the cover and I didn't actually write anything about this cover yet, but uh, just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. It is a – I like the technique Miura used in terms of the brush stroke with, with Skull Knight because it's very, it's very hatching. It's very kind of uh, rough. Well, I was uh, just going to say, how about it has Skull Knight on it? I mean that's pretty – Yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> that's that's pretty fucking cool. Don't bury yeah. the lead. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a significant volume for him as well. I mean it's it, it contains the most Skull Knight lore of the entire series thus far. So it makes sense that he's, he makes it to the cover. And I also like that we get, uh, yet again, guts with his, uh, heroic looking red cape. We saw that in volume nine as well. I still don't think of it as red in my head whenever I see it in black and white, but brown. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know, but either way, it's clearly red. Mira's trying to tell us something with that. Sometimes Uh, it's blue though, or at least it will be, I think on volume 11's cover, unless that's supposed to be like the shadows, but no, it looks pretty Looks yeah. pretty damn blue. Yeah, I, yeah, think, I think you're right. I think Mira doesn't really care. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just like, what would it look nice on this cover? The background's kind of orange. Let's make it red. <laughs> yeah, probably right. Yeah, I don't have much to add to it. Um, well, you know, I, I think it, uh, I think the pose of guts is pretty fucking heroic. Yeah. And uh, one thing is uh, the whole, you know, rocky outcrop thing. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent of uh, a later cover, you know, of uh, volume twenty nine. With uh, Berserk's armor, you know. I just like what a classic fantasy pose this is. And like, you know, Skull Knight in that fantasy, whatever short fantasy story this would represent anywhere else would probably be like the villain, you know, that he's going up yeah. against. But here That's it's just, true. you know. Yeah. Actually, it kind of reminds me of uh, like what would uh, a Conan cover be like, you know. Yeah. With, uh, sure, the Rick yeah. Wire and the evil wizard in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Skull it- wizard. The hatching, yeah. the hatching around his eyes does look very. It looks like it's implying an eye back there, but it's not. There's no way it, it is because we know that's. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Actually, I'd never noticed that. Yeah. yeah. No. Yeah, I remember seeing that too, and uh, you know, sort of wondering is that supposed to be an eye? I think the problem though is if you look at the hatching and both of them, yeah, they, lo- they would look like if they if you saw them as eyes, they'd be kind of googly eyes. They don't quite match up, which tells me that they're not supposed to be eyes. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll go ahead and get moving with the full volume. Um, We have a preview page with uh, Griffith, which is what we see ahead whenever he's in the cell. And it's kind of jumping ahead to that part of the conversation, but just a quick glimpse is this particular image represents kind of the idea of Griffith. It's like Griffith's idea of himself in his head as he's thinking about himself projecting who he was throughout, you know, his life's achievements and things like that. So it's a very idealized version of Griffith we're seeing here. And I think that's fitting given his circumstance. 
Uh, and we get yet another splash screen of Guts. Um, I think this is supposed to be uh, during the time when they're escaping from the tower, uh, when he's reaching for his sword, it's just spanning the whole page, he's dropping his cloak. Yeah, that's got to be. You know, I think uh, that's uh, just the title of the episode, so that's technically the first page of that, the first episode, you know. Oh, you're right. It's one of those things, which is, I guess they also did in Volume 9 with the Skull Knights thing. He's removing his cloak, you know, before doing the mm. deed. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> the deed, right. <laughs> yeah, he's getting ready. Actually, <laughs> three pointers. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I actually like uh, the, the way it's shown, you know, the back of the armor. You know, that's the kind of shot you don't see often, you know, mm-hmm. in many series. And uh, I like that stuff. And yeah, you know, beyond the joke, you know, that actually foreshadows, you know, the tower. You can even see the way Guts is stepping. You know, you can see he's stepping on stairs. He's like going upstairs, yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's right. pretty it's pretty cool. But yeah, I, I like the fact you see the armor from behind, you know. It's, you know, even the, the shot of the arm from the back is pretty cool. Those are the kind of details that really make me appreciate Mira's uh, sorrowness. Yeah, and there, there's a couple instances of that throughout the episode, the whole volume that we're going to talk about where Mira added needless detail to flesh out the armor <laughs> designs or just considerations for how things would work mechanically that I'd never even considered. So we'll, we'll get into those later on. But uh, we are, as the episode opens up, we are basically right where we left off in Volume 9. This whole episode really could have fit better as the bookend for Volume 9, but that's just how things work sometimes. You know, sometimes it spills over into the next volume, but that's okay. Uh, we're still here with Guts and Casca after they've been together for the first time. Uh, or is it the second time at this point? I can't remember. First time, let's say. But um, what I like about this is Casca's very uh, – uh, first of all, I shouldn't skip ahead. Casca's talking – asking Guts if this was his first time and he's kind of embarrassed about it, which is pretty cute that you know he didn't want to admit that it was his first time, him being you know the manly guy and all. Mm. But I think, you know, overall, that's probably the cutest and sweetest moment in the series, you know, at least as wow. far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I'm going to say, I mean, like that whole, you know, scene, that episode of them together, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's uh, really, I think it's really the high point almost of the golden age, you know, like, you know, the fact it was a happy time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and also, Casca is like a real, you know, like just a normal person rather than, you know, someone, you know, always going to and from the battlefield or anything like that. She's just asking him these, you know, really intimate, you know, pillow talking kind of questions. And, you know, I don't think we've ever really gotten to see her like that, you know, before or since, not exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's also funny to see Guts, you know, not entirely comfortable with the conversations. They're like, uh, you know, like I imagine, you know, William rolling over onto his pillow. I'm like, uh. <laughs> yeah, his, I like that he changes his body language whenever she asks him that because he's, you know, he's he's turning away from her, but he's still being open with her. He's telling her something about himself, about how he's not uncomfortable with her touching him, despite his childhood trauma. And something that is special about her that didn't yeah. bother him, you know? So he's opening up to her, but he's also turning his back to her because he's not used to opening up to anybody like this. So yeah. it's instinctual that he would act like this. And, you know, when she gives him a, a kiss on the cheek, you know, you can see his expression is, you know, like... All that kind of all that relationship with them between them, you know, like without words, you know, a lot is a lot is said. I think. Yeah, I like how enthusiastic Casca is immediately after that. Her face, she's like really thinking about the future, uh, which is, I mean, it's all gonna work out. 
It's a little, it's a little stereotypical to say so, but it, it makes sense after, you know, having sex that you would think about a continued relationship with this person. But Guts, you know, being the typical guy is like, I want to draw the line, keep things separate, which is like the worst thing you can possibly say in this particular moment. Like he's being honest. He's on, he has his personal journey and that's what he's being motivated by right now. But he also, I mean, I also think it kind of draws attention to his immaturity, uh, in a, in a relationship like this. You know, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure it's really so much about the relationship as it is about, you know, the whole deal with the Ben of the Falcon, you know, and his, his life, you know, Jose. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this episode, you know, you tell me if I'm going too fast, but I think this episode, one thing that really, you know, uh, matters to me there is the fact, the flashback with Godot, you know, the sure. talk Gus has with Godot and, you know, when Godot tells him about his, you know, first I like that we interest to Godot right now in volume 10 and, you know, it's not for no reason. Like Mira's already planned what happens after the eclipse, you know, at this point, four volumes on. So, and so you see Godot, you know, telling us about his life, you know, being a smith, having done that ever since he was born. And I think it relates, you know, it's, it's, it can be put in parallel with Gus' own life, you know, with the sword, you know, wielding a sword. That's the only thing he's ever knew. And so that transition into, you know, Gus thinking about, you know, his own life, his goals, you know, and uh, the philosophy of dreams that Griffiths had and how that doesn't necessarily work out for him. And he makes up his mind to follow his own path, you know, to make his own way. And so I think, you know, like that's what, you know, really, how to say, matters towards his, this, what he tells Casca, you know, about keeping things separate, about, you know, what he wants to do, even though it's kind of, like you said, it's not really appropriate for pillow talk. And so it's normal she takes it, you know, badly. Well, yeah, we may as well jump to the Godot thing, and, and that's fine. And I, I appreciate that Mira has like a frame story here. Uh, I remember when I was first reading it, I was a little confused about the sequence of events, but it's clear that it's a flashback. I mean, there's no question it is. Yeah, of course. Um, it's during it's during his year. Well, I think of, he I think he goes away from Casca for a little while. <laughs> this, this waterfall and starts yeah. training. No, it's, it was <laughs> it was just a stupid comment. I remember being slightly confused, thinking about things my very first time. But anyway. Godot, I think what, what I really like about this whole scene, first of all, is Godot is just a really cool character. And I, I think Miura puts, kind of puts him on a special place in terms of, uh, Berserk characters because he's kind of, he's kind of separate from the story. He's, he's really kind of just a, he's basically a philosophical mentor for guts, even if he doesn't yeah. mean to be, you know, he's not part of the Falcons. He's not part of the Midland forces and not an apostle or a god hand. He's a separate but an authoritative person on the world. He's also so, never touched by sort of the outside story other than fixing Guts gear. I mean, well, he does see that mo- this right. sort of kick monster guy. When it's thrust upon him in that point. Yeah, but know? by he the time like uh, the story really comes to his doorstep with Griffith and Zod, he's already passed away. Right. What I like about the way this scene opens is that Guts is interested in what Goto has to say. Go- G- Guts is, is prodding him. To talk about his path and why he why he's been a blacksmith his whole life and mm. like Azil, like you said, I think Godot's path does mimic or mirror Guts' own. At least Guts sees some similarities in the way that Godot has been kind of mindlessly following what has been what he's been trained to do. You know, since before I knew how to walk, this was in my hand, holding a, the hammer. Which, in, in, in terms of imagery, we see Guts doing the same thing a page later. You know, yeah. I think there's some, some clear parallels being drawn here. Well, and of course, there's a, there's a whole spark thing, which is uh, yeah. the title of the episode. So, yeah, that clearly, you know, links them. 
Yeah, it's a poignant description of Sparks. Uh, it's the flickering moments of life. And, you know, Guts has, uh, a similar, a similar thought whenever he's reflecting on his own life as we continue on. I like that Mira chose to not only just show Guts just fucking chopping logs, which is how this you know, whole thing starts, but Guts <laughs> is also, he's on a personal introspective journey, you know? And so it's, it's nice that he shows us these private moments because, I mean, in my opinion, we get too few of these. And, and I, I know you have to judiciously intersperse these kinds of moments. Otherwise it becomes too predictable or, you know, almost, um, expected. But I, I, I would, I love to get inside Gut's head. I love to see these kind of things. And well, also, it's, almost, uh, it's, it's like all been like, just if you want to talk about just the density of these episodes, you've got his, you know, intimate moments with him and Casca along with establishing, you know, Godo and what he was doing there and his philosophy on life and Gut's thinking sort of about everything. And mm-hmm. then we go back to him and Casca. I mean, it's just a really, really thick, busy, heavy episode. Yeah. I mean, it's all really good though too. And I mean, yeah, like you said, this is one of the more interesting moments where we have Guts thinking about himself and his place in the world and sort of what his, you know, what his belief system is or his way of life. Yeah, and what he wants. Yeah, and I mean, there's lots of great imagery just with like the sword coming literally out of his hand as an extension. Yeah. And also, it's one of my favorite character collages on that same page yeah. with all those, oh, yeah. the, the way it's arranged. It's just really magnificent. Yeah, as a, as a, yeah, as a composite shot is great. You know, after he's had this, you know, like he's reflected about it and he tells Casca that, yeah, he wants to, like he'll help with the, the rescue of Griffiths, but he wants to stick to his guns and be his own man and not, you know, go back to that. He wants to like, you know, walk his own path and, and all that. And she actually gets really angry, you know, and, uh, because like from her point of view, uh, all she can see is that he's being selfish, pretty much just like Griffiths. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's true. It's not very tact- tactful of him, but, you know, after that, of course, he tells her he wants her along and, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's that kind of stuff that makes me say it's one of the sweetest moments, you know, like the fact he wants to walk his own path, but he also wants her to come with him and, uh, what he tells her, the way she reacts, I, I find it very sweet, you know, I find it really very sweet. So I do yeah, like how I, he interrupts her with comedy. You know, yeah, of you, course, and, and of course, yeah, that's one of, one of the things is that, you know, this, this kind of stuff, you know, people often don't appreciate, you know, the comedy in the series, but, you know, these kind of scenes also, you know, serve to bring some levity to the scenes and to make them all the more light, you know. Like people, you know, nowadays, you know, like there was a thread recently where someone said, oh, the series too light, should go back to darker moments and stuff, but what they don't realize is that, you know, light moments have, have always been there. It's, uh, it's part of what it is. When pe- when people say that, I think they're just talking about like two episodes of Volume Sixteen. I think that's what they're talking about. Guts chewing through baby guts is always yeah, what yeah, about. pretty much. And that's that yeah. one little scene. It should be yeah, that the course. whole time. But the thing is, yeah, you know, like it's people who they have this shot, you know, in their head, and uh, the one where guts is almost, you know, hesitating to kill Jill or something like right. that, or you know, yeah. So <clears throat> it doesn't it doesn't bear repeating. Well. Well, before we move this scene out from this scene, I wanted to comment on something that seems obvious to what we would talk about it for newer readers is that they're naked this entire scene, which, you know, makes, makes strike some people as odd. But I, I think it's not just, it's not gratuitous. It's, 
They're, they, I mean, it's it, it serves the purpose of they're also laying themselves bare throughout this whole scene. You know, oh yeah, yeah of, course, of course. Of course, they just had sex. I mean, that's a given that you would still be naked. But I don't think there's know, really anything gratuitous about it. I mean, it is not like you know. Yeah, it's this not, is not depicted. A, this a, is not erotic, you know, right. <laughs> like at all. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not depicted in a sexual way, and uh, it's also something that. You know, Westerners might not necessarily get, but, you know, like, you know, there's not the same taboo for nudity in Asia than there might be in the USA, you know, which is a rather Puritan. So, you know, like, yeah, they can show naked bodies and that's not meant to elicitate, you know, elicit any, any kind of, you know, erotic. Sure. <clears throat> and as the scene ends, we have this, uh, shot away from them as two woodcutters are spot the, uh, the cobra apostle in the distance. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it made me think that from this, just with this one instance, uh, wouldn't there be more apostle sightings than, than our, you know, than you think, given well, this, this kind is, of thing? Well, this is them coming together now, I of think. Course. Yeah. Of course. Of course, they're, they're gathering, but I'm just saying if there are that many and there things like this happen, I wonder how many times that's happened in the Berserk history, you know, that kind of stuff. Probably a lot, you know, we just don't see or hear about it. <laughs> Well, you know, it's the same way that people, you know, talk about elves, but, you know, like in the big cities, people, you know, say, ah, there's no such thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, out there in the woods, you know, like, you know, some, you know, two guys, you know, cutting woods, they saw this, you know, giant monster. Yeah. And like, I tell you, I saw it. It was a giant snake monster. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, sure. yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, I think it participates to the whole, you know, uh, world into which fantasy is disappearing. You know, it's, it's a, it's a trope of fantasy, I, I think you could say, but you know, like it's, I think it's particularly well executed here where it's, it's very, you know, like it's hinted that it's always around the corner, but you know, it's not always shown. And, right. uh, <clears throat> and yeah, actually, of course, you know, like Griffiths was saying earlier, all this episode is full of stuff and that's really the cherry on top, you know, I mean, we, we, yeah. not only do we see an apostle, but it's a fucking snake baron, you know, so. So we know, yeah, it just calls you back. Like, it yeah, good it's, point. It's so meaningful just that it was yeah. him. And it's like, oh, wow, it's, here uh, we here we are. It's, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, can you imagine? I think if we saw that, like, if I had been, if we had been following the series at the time, I would have fucking shut my pants, you know. I mean, it's not necessarily as big as Skull Knight and Femto on top of Ganishka, but it's pretty fucking cool. I mean, that's when you know, like, oh, fuck, you know, it's happening. Whenever, you know? whenever I generally look at this panel... I generally just immediately associate, oh yeah, it's the snake, snake apostle. And, and I never really looked at his mouth. You can actually see the outline of his face and, his, and the, you know, yeah. The, yeah. The, the tongue, you know, the very unique looking tongue coming out of his mouth like that. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty fucking cool. And, uh, and yeah, then I, of course it cuts to the Barrett and that's like, you know, it's, right. It's, we see that it's still, it's, it's moving too. It's migrating yeah. as well. Not even it's just that. It's, it's, it's made an advanced landing in anticipation of, you know, what's to come. It's setting the stage for when Griffith lands in that rocky territory. Well, you know, I actually, I actually don't think it's already in the lake, you know. As I always saw it, is like it's in a river and it's traveling there, you know. Yeah, That's I'm what, just saying I, it looks very shallow and it's a, still the same rocky terrain that we end up in. I don't know. It seems pretty similar to me. Well, you know, yeah, maybe. But, you know what, it's know. interesting. This is an interesting discussion because I think the uh, the anime, like, specifically shows it going down a river. And I've always thought of it that way too, but here mm. it just, it's kind of vague. It's a little more ambiguous. I never really thought of that. It's like, it could be, either way. It, it just, could be it traveling just... a river or it could already be, yeah, like waiting for Griffith to put his hand on it. It just looks very shallow. That's all. That's my only point. Um, the interstitial 
panels we get between episodes. This happens a couple times. I think it's two or three times. This one's with Guts. We see another one with Casca as well uh, before the next uh, episode. And they, they all kind of have a theme. And it, it looks to be like, you know, drawing dread on what's about to happen, what they're about to find out with Griffith. That's just my reading of this intense look on Guts and the similar one on Casca later on. Uh, I, I think there's some context for the look Guts gives in that moment, but I don't know exactly where it is. I think it's when he sees the guard – or sorry, the jailer coming up behind them. I can't remember, but either way. I just like that there's a theme to it of dread. Um, the next part uh, focuses on Griffith and his background. We get more about Griffith's history than we ever have uh, here just in the first few pa- – the first page actually. That yeah, and was- on the second one, we've got that uh, that sort of intro splash page. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I really like the the visuals here uh, that we see the castle that's been you know captured and crystallized in Griffith's mind. You know, yeah. his, his, his dream, his goal to, to be above where he was born, to, to rise himself up from these, you know, dark streets where no light ever touched. Oh, I thought, I thought that was very fitting that he was, you know, yeah. starting as a street rat and, you know, these panels are really pretty great. I think it also captures, uh, Jorge's, uh, fact it's memories from his youth, you know, so the way a child would sit, you know, in his mm-hmm. mind. It's also just really cool the contrast between like the the aerial shot of him and then him looking up at the castle, you know, and almost like it's looking back down on him. It's sort of you know, gives, yeah. you know, it's, it gives you a little vertigo almost, you know, just the the contrast, the way that goes back and forth. And I also really like the shot on the next page of him sort of running away with all the you know the other little kids waving to him, and he's he's running after them, but he's also looking back at the castle. Right, like yeah. it captured it, it captures attention. Yeah. it always would. And it's yeah, and it's never gonna. You know, it's never going to break. You know that yeah. that attention. Uh, we get these introspections about his thoughts, what's going through his head, what's driving him, and it seems pretty clear that he's beginning to lose his sanity. And who the fuck can blame him, really? I mean, when we <laughs> find when yeah. the, the veil is finally lifted for what he had endured for a year, of course he's going insane. Of course his thoughts are becoming muddled about what's real, what's unreal how he truly felt about all these things, how he blames Guts and yet still is uh, attached to Guts uh, irrevocably. It all, it, it's its logical. It's, it can hardly blame him for the way that he feels. But I also like that we get sort of his, uh, we, we got to read his mind for how he has manipulated people throughout all the times that he, he, he knew that uh, people, he could trust people or we have to, he would have to manipulate people. And, mm-hmm. He reflects on all the things, all the people that he had held in his hand and that now he has nothing, but that Guts was the one that somehow grew out of his reach. And he can't – he's trying to identify at what point did that happen, at what point did – And not only that, but he somehow you know, found himself in Guts' hand, Yeah, you know, at least to his mind. Yeah, you know, it's funny actually that he can only reason in, you know, these terms, you know, that like it's either he holds something in his hand or he's held in someone's hand, you know. It's not, because it's not really the case, you know, at least that's not how Guts views it, but, you know, that's how Griffiths views it. Because to him, yeah, he's lost control and, you know, it's because of Guts and not only that, but Guts has control over him. That's the, that's the terms that Griffith views the world. That's, it makes sense that he would try to see it in that context, even if Guts, 
doesn't see himself as like a dictator of Griffith's life, but yeah. he effectively has had an effect on Griffith's life. I like the visual here of how Guts has grown grown larger than the castle in his dreams as well. When his, his head is kind of melting into the castle. Yeah, it's a good um how to say it's a good way to visually, you know uh how to say illustrate uh, so sure. what he's actually feeling and and saying, you know, what the was, you know, say. And also and calls- just the what he says, how he says, how he's, you know, it's, it's how bright he is, you know, that he's blinding, you know, the, the light that he emanates, you know, he's such this powerful, you know, sort of charismatic figure, which goes great with the visual of him being even larger than the castle. Yeah. During the scene, we also, he also uses the same wording to compare guts uh, out of how many thousands of comrades and 10,000s of enemies. Why just yeah. him? Which is, we see that again in volume 12, of course. Yeah, actually, uh, I always thought that it's, uh, you know, like this scene, this, you know, episode really is a, the key moment into which Griffith essentially loses his mind, you know, and also, like, the decision to sacrifice, you know, comes from that point, you know, like, specifically, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and of course, that's what he says before sacrificing. Uh, we finally get uh, a little glimpse at his condition whenever he's calling out Gut's name. I do like how uh, you can't see much. You can't even see his head is still enshrouded in darkness. It's just this figure that you, you hope as a first time reader is not Griffith because of the condition. And it's just, it's not, it's not happy. Yeah. And the shot of his, of his eyes, you know, also like you see one in the, uh, a bit earlier, you know, and uh, you see another one there in the dark, you know, and it's very, you know, like I always, I always had a feeling that his eyes are just sort of unblinking, you know, Mm, and yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it also reflects. I, I to me, it's always been very powerful, you know, reflecting on his the state of his body, you know. He gets a, a visit from these dark, otherworldly creatures. We've discussed these things before. I can't remember the con- consensus we came to. Uh, I think I had initially postulated that perhaps they were part of the vortex because of how they're kind of a conglomeration. But yeah. I, I don't think it's anything that specific. It's also not nearly as I don't know. Either way, I think it's merely the God Hand using these as a medium to communicate with them, and then that's kind of obvious. Yeah. But I kind of just mean the nature of these. It, it makes sense that the God Hand have dominion over evil, and there's the, there's this dark place where people have been tortured for years. Of course, the God Hand are going to have some kind of medium to communicate with him, and it's going to be kind of undescribably grotesque and <laughs> yeah, gross. I mean, they sort of look like, you know, sort of, you know, solidified, manifested, like, ghouls, like the kind that would haunt, you know, guts later. Yeah. You know, sort of as if they were, as if the slime and the blood and the mud down there, you know, they were able to, like, you know, take form with that and come say hello to Griffith in this weird scene where, you know, they're calling him, you know, you know, basically royalty and kissing his finger. And then, of course, we get, and, you know, he thinks he's hallucinating. And then he sees uh, the the god. Look at the, before we do that, he responds to them calling him royalty. Like his mouth moves at it. It's almost smiling at the at the recognition. Uh, before but it's he also kisses, sort of it's almost hand. like it could, you could also take it as like like the way. I mean, it's a pretty brutal looking mouth at this point. Oh yeah, it could sure. almost be like an an ironic sort of grin. Like you know, really mm, sure. <laughs> like, I also appreciate, of course, that. 
I'm trying to think of this again as a first time reader to, to be introduced to that Escher dimension, the God hand dimension again. Well, you know, this, they would, they would be reminded of, uh, volume three, you know, of course they would. Yeah. I'm just saying it would be an exciting moment, you know, yeah, to see, all, to see these guys again, to know that it's, this time is coming. And you know, you have to think, even though the be here, it's not here, that the time has come. The time is, is, is nigh. If we're getting introduced to the God hand like this, will it happen here? Will it happen now? You know, we've already known the Behirids apart from him. So people have to be thinking when and how is the eclipse going to happen if the Behirids separated from him? But he's already having these visions and these thoughts. Yeah. And we saw the Behirid just uh, like an episode ago, you know, we, yeah. we saw it in the water. So we know something's afoot. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yeah, of course, yeah, I think to me it's the same, you know, it likes a continuation of the thing with the, the snake apostle and, and everything is just, you know, Getting there, you you have you get the feeling that things are coming to a close very soon. There's one thing I meant to do before we recorded, and I never took the time to do it, which is the God Hand and the Dark Horse translation call him O Blessed King of Longing. But that translation's always seemed off to me, mostly because I can't reconcile the intent with it, and I wonder if it actually means something more along the lines of. Uh, the, the, the kinsman that we long for or something like that. You know, the person that we want to be among us, that kind of thing. Because I'm not sure blessed king of longing means anything, you know, by itself. No, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of meaningless. Actually, yeah. uh, I should ask Perla, you know, she, she could tell us. And, and again, it's not super important that we know, we know what it, it, we know it is not a special title because it doesn't make sense for it to be a one-time title, never spoken again. For it to have any significance. It's just a one-off weird translation I was just curious about mostly. Anyway, we'll just we'll move right along. The Falcons are gearing up for the infiltration mission. I appreciate Mira's uh kicking things into high gear. We see multiple guys trooping uh you know getting assembled, but we learn that it's just the core group of Falcons that are gonna be doing the actual infiltration mission uh in, in Wyndham. There's a bit of comedy, uh, when Casca takes the horse. She's still a little sore from the previous no, day. Actually, before that, if you don't mind, I was, you know, I was actually stricken by Rickert, you know, when I, I, yeah. I read that. Uh, I thought, you know, see, seeing him like that, uh, so young, I guess it really feels like, you know, a lot of time has passed, you know. I mean, uh, when you see like the current episodes, he seems, I know we, we talked about the fact he didn't feel like, you know, necessarily much time had passed and stuff like that, but actually seeing him like that, uh, that feels like really ages ago. I don't know if it's, you know, just me guys, but uh, just me or, or, or not you guys, but either way, yeah, it, it felt like, you know, it's really, like, he, he looks so young. Like, yeah, really, I know, yeah, I know. No, it's, it's striking, and it's also his attitude, too, like, where he's, you know, he feels bad that he can't go, and he wants them to fight harder, you know, for him, and it's just, uh, it's really sweet and it sort of, you know, contrasts that where he is now, sort of where he's, you know, he's yeah. a little more up and, you know, he certainly isn't as innocent, you know, not, not by any virtue, anything bad he's done, but just sort of the way of the world and his knowledge yeah. of it and his having to navigate through it now and being in a very dangerous place. It's, it just, it's, it's a cynical feeling almost seeing him so innocent like this. Yeah, he's a lot more grave. His attitude, yeah. everything like that. He's very, yeah. you know, serious. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very deep. Uh, it's also worth noting in this scene as, as Judo pats him on the shoulder to let him know to leave it to us. This is the last time he sees these guys, except for Guts and Casca. Yeah, true. So it's a, it's a sad departure for, yeah, 
for he's him. He doesn't know it, of course. He's hopeful, Luke, you know, and the last thing he says, you know, everything, everything will be back, you know, the way it was like before. Yeah, and Gut's expression is great. It just, <laughs> yeah. you, you know exactly what he's thinking. He says no words, you know. Right. <laughs> well, he's, he's wondering himself how, what's, what yeah. Griffith's, what, what that group is going to resemble when he, they get Griffith back, if they get Griffith back, so. Yeah, anyway. I think he's just. Well, I think actually, he also knows he's not coming back. I, well. I I think you're a bit cynical here. I think he's just he's just happy. Uh, you know, I don't know. Really? Yeah, he's also he's. I think he's smiling at him genuinely, but he's also. Yeah. I think the ellipsis means you know it's because you know he yeah, knows for not, a fact that he's not planning on coming yeah, back. So he's, he he's not. Little. He's not gonna stay. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree uh, with that. And needless to say, the the old days aren't coming back. Is that look? You know. Um, we already commented on Casca's thing. I, I like Casca's look at, gr- at guts. Um, yeah, I like that. You know, guts, he's just like, you know, hey, everything's fine for me. <laughs> and, yeah. I think it's, uh, I think it's, uh, it's pretty funny, and at the same time, manages to comment on her, you know, like a real, I don't know, maybe a lowly bodily, you know, thing. But I, I find it, you know, interesting that Mira manages to make it to something funny, but at the same time, he communicates the fact that yeah, they're a couple, and you know, stuff like that, and there's. Like it changes things, even in small ways. Oh yeah, and we see that a number of times. Um, yeah. What I like about immediately after this is that Casca. Uh, it struck me to see Casca leap into command like this with this heroic-looking shot of her gesturing to the corner there. Yeah. Like that, she's going to have to regain that confidence again when she's restored. I doubt it's going to come naturally. You know, when we're talking about further down the line. Yeah, I agree. Uh, into the into the future, I doubt she's going to be just like this when she comes. But it's going to be great to see her uh, to re- have that restored if that yeah, does happen, indeed. just like that. And you know, it's, there's also the fact like we don't see it this time, but Gus eventually comments on how he he even you know as as a her lover and longtime comrade and everything, he underestimated her actual abilities, you know, when he saw her during the eclipse, for example, the way she behaved, everything like that. At that time, he could see that she was really a leader, not just, you know, good leader, but really someone exceptional. Right. Anyway, just one thing when they ride out, you see Gus and Casca exchanging a, a look or stuff like that. And you see Judo looking at them and not saying anything. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, this small scene is interesting. The way he looks like he doesn't look all too happy about, you know what's going on, and uh, he, I think he notices at the time what's going on between them. You know, like uh, any good unrequited lover. So yeah, I, sure. I, like that. I mean, I that's, that's, that look that's, on his face—that's almost a Griffith-like look, except for Judo. I think it's just sort of because it's the moment of you know recognition for him. Yeah, that, you know, you know uh, obviously he's going to be you know very magnanimous, you know, and was before sure. you know he left the hawks even you know but now it's like this is where he knows like uh. <laughs> yeah it's 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 like he's been courting this girl for a while and yeah then her, her ex-boyfriend came out of juvie you know and then <laughs> just rides back in and has sex with her you know yeah i feel like i mean this is a really unreally an unguarded moment for him that look on his face where it's just like oh there's there's right. the moment it's, where his heart is breaking. <laughs> like, yeah, it's worth it's, uh, it's worth noting that he never holds it against guts, though he's a good yeah, guy. Either, or yeah. you know, either of them, he does not hold any sort of grudge. He's a very genuine, you know, sort of person. You know, what's 
what's crazy is that it's exactly the kind of guys that no girl ever goes for. You know, <laughs> the, the the good guy, the loser. You know, who's uh, <laughs> like, I don't know who's fixing the printer of the hot cheerleader and why she's getting banged by her. You know, uh, <laughs> football. You know, playing you know boyfriend in the adjacent room. You know, yeah. so <laughs> that's I'll universal. Hold your, I'll hold your coat for you. <laughs> yeah, cute. and and the thing is, what's funny is that uh, Judo had such a such a fan base, you know, among girls at the time, and, and probably still does. But uh, yeah, what, why, you know, I mean, this kind of guy, this kind of attitude, just never. I mean, he's happy for them, and he actually even tried to set them up together while he loves her. That's, I don't know, that's retarded. <laughs> so, I'm sorry, Judo, you're, you're fucking, you know, you're the worst. <laughs> this this upcoming sequence here is is I mean honestly it's it really is this whole adventure that they take in Wyndham getting there getting in and getting out is one of my favorite sequences in the entire series like bar none it, yeah, it's, it's just great. so loaded with uh, dynamics and nuance you know you think you know what to expect and then they throw another curveball at you and throughout the whole thing we're gonna see all the Falcons use their unique abilities and talents it's it's you know. I, I hate to use the example, but it, it's like they're a party and they each have unique abilities and they're all using them to their fullest extent <laughs> to get out alive. So. You know, what I totally like about this is that it's uh, definitely to me one of the coolest parts of the Golden Age arc. You know, like oh, absolutely. Uh, volumes 9, 10, 11. And it happens mostly without Griffiths or uh, with him as uh, an invalid. So... There's often many people who say, I don't know many people, but there's been people who said in the past that Berserk was, you know, as much about Griffiths as about Gus, that kind of bullshit. And, you know, or at least during the Golden Age. But, you know, I think this shows that the Golden Age, it was really always, and like everything else about Guts and his experiences with these people. And these were his friends. And to me, that moment is really important to cement that, you know, the pain he felt when they died, you know. Right. Uh, well, you know, I don't think these parts are that great. Not not as great as you know <laughs> before. When Griffiths took a bath and, and uh, yeah, that was awesome. And he showed his beard. <laughs> Good but stuff. It, I mentioned, you know, like I said, the adventure they're going to take, or they're what they're about to be faced against. But also, it's also the the witty exchanges that are throughout this whole sequence. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mira just throws jabs left and right. And they're almost all of them are genuinely funny and they still make me laugh out loud whenever I see well, them. Like yeah. the, the way this one starts out, the way the way it starts out is guts talking about, you know, could the secret passage really be here? Like I'll stop being a mercenary if we find it this quick. And you're like, well, well here it is. I guess it's going to be retirement for you guts. And he's like, ah, fuck, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> totally just adding to the dynamic between the characters. And it's just fun stuff. Like you were saying about, you know, just sort of the, the inherent comedy in these scenes, you know, right after they find that secret passage, then, you know, there's this disagreement sort of between uh, Guts and Casca, and it starts to come into conflict, their personal relationship and their, you know, command yeah. relationship. And it's just funny to see her get in his face. And, you know, they're both sort of worried about each other. And poor Judo and Pippin are like, you know, they've got these great looks on their face where, you know, first they look shocked and they're looking at each other like, oh, man. And then at the end, after they finally settle it, after Casca has to sort of, you know, chew guts out and tell him, you know, hey, I'm the commander here and don't worry about protecting me and all this stuff. You know, follow your, your, you know, superior officer's orders. Like, you know, then they're just laughing at him. And yeah. it's just a really 
cute she does little a, She chest bumps Gust, which I like. Yeah. You know, that's pretty yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. That's and why he's like sort of taken aback, like, whoa, yeah. and gets right in his face. It's, 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 it's her version of grabbing the boob. <laughs> and, you know, I've always thought that people nowadays in God's party, he essentially does whatever the fuck he wants, you know, like Shuriki yeah. will say, no, don't do it. He's like, oh, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> and yeah, and or he'll be like, yeah, okay, but then he just does it, you know. Yeah, so the thing is, yeah, if if Casca comes comes back, that's the kind of thing that she'll be like, ah, oh, take care of it, and she she just punch him in the face, you know, <laughs> like, all right, all right, all right, we'll do it another way. I'm cutting you it off the be... base wheel. <laughs> you know what would be so funny wheel. is if when she did come back, if she if there was a moment, I could see her doing this where she just punches him in the face. And he complies where everyone else sort of realizes, like, first of all, like, wow, she's a lot more violent than I expected. But also, I guess, you know, this is how you have to communicate with him. This is what he understands. <laughs> so, like, that's she's on the same how, level. Yeah. That's, so that's how, how you get across to him. <laughs> yeah. The but, last big talk he and Casca had, it came to sword point. So. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, just to follow up to what you were saying earlier, uh, I think what you said about them being a party and everything like that in a kind of role-playing way. And yeah, very simply, I think the, the way they interact with each other, the jazz, the little jokes, they really come across of a, a group of friends. Mm. You know, just that. They are, they are friends. They are having, you know, not fun, but they are adventuring together. They know each strength uh, and uh, weakness they might have, you know, each other. So, they, yeah, they're really complementary and they get along well. And, yeah, I think it's uh, just very, you know, we, we don't get to see that in the big war scenes. We'll get a yeah. shot of uh, Judo, you know, knifing a guy and Rickard and Pippin maybe, you know, like something. But you don't get to see these guys, like the main guys yeah. together. Well, and, and of and course it's all sort big, of – it's a twist of the knife too because, I mean, the, they emphasize it more when Griffith comes back and, you know, helps Pippin, you know, get them out of uh, trouble with the fireball and he points it out. And it's sort of this moment where they're all like, yeah, you know, we've got the band back together and aren't sure. we great, you know, and it's like yeah. – uh, you know, yeah. In retrospect, it's not so so great. <laughs> yeah, it's their last adventure together because it, yeah, and, after it's, this. and it's where they're left thinking. Even as Griffith is concerned, like it's all going to work out. You know, it gives them this false hope that you know, like yeah, you know, it's this can work. Yeah. Yep. As the next episode starts, uh, well, first of all, I guess we should emphasize that we have this uh, preview shot with Casca and Charlotte together. Actually, really cool. Yeah, it is yeah. really neat. And with the Tower of Rebirth in the background, yeah, I thought that was background. really cool. The choice yeah, of that, to have that kind of highlighted in that in that way through a window, like a portico type thing. Yeah, and I like the fact that Casca is holding a sword to her chest yeah, as well. She looks extremely, it's very romantic, that shot of her, you know, this sort of this like sensitive <laughs> warrior, you know. It's really cool. It's the female cast of Berserk to this point, basically. In the <laughs> yeah, Age. actually. Not counting maids and such. Yeah, yeah, Anna. Who can leave or Anna the evil out? Queen. Sure. Yeah, I guess I'm being productive, but my point's taken. <laughs> uh, as the episode starts, Guts is basically reassuring himself that you know Griffith was never the kind of guy to you know let things get him down to to, to retreat from his path. To that he's trying to tell himself that it's uncharacteristic that he can be dragged down by anything. So, but I think the 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 way this scene leaves him is that I think he's feeling guilty about it, uh, about what happened to Griffith 
as the way it's been told to him is that he has he had a role in it. Yeah, he's beginning to feel fault. that. He's beginning to feel that guilt. Yeah, and, and I think it's also a, to, yeah, he's also it's also a realization that you know he was important. You know, part of the reason he left is because he felt like you know he wasn't Griffith's friend or important to him, and I think he's starting to realize you know that you know he had it wrong. Yeah, and I and I think what Casca, you know, like he reflects on what Casca told him, and I think that's also. Like that's when it hits him, all these things together, the fact it happened and the fact, you know, Casca knew him and told him that. And, uh, yeah, it, it all hits him in the face, you know. I didn't think about it before, but during this scene, he's running through moments, flashbacks of Griffith yeah. talking to him. And, you know, there's one where Griffith doesn't even bother to give him a real answer about why he saved him. And then he's, but he, he obviously, he's, he gets his realizing in this flashback that, Perhaps he meant more to Griffith than he realized because Griffith then asks him to validate his actions. Do you think that I'm cruel? Yeah. And then it hits yeah. wordlessly that he knows suddenly that you know Griffith clearly put a lot of weight into Gut's feelings and he probably didn't realize it until he really thought about it. So, Yeah. And to just you know uh, take on the purely visual aspect of the scene, I really like the way the running through the sewers is depicted. You know, with a shot of the boots on the water, then there's a shot of God's reflection when he's sinking. You know, on the water, I, I really like this. You know, the way it's done, it's very yeah. cinematic. So yeah, I just figured I'd point it out. Sure. <clears throat> uh, you know, I've always commented that I appreciate getting these statues, these kind of. Oh yeah. Even if it's a one-dimensional glimpse at Midland's history, I I, I like seeing that Miura has chosen to flesh out these things with statues, and, and you know he doesn't spare any detail. Uh, really cool stuff. If you really just sit there and look at it, Mid, Midland's whole architecture. We see a lot of it in these next few episodes. That uh, kind of an inside look uh, at night as well. I didn't mention it before, but we we're talking about Judo's reflecting on seeing Casca and Guts together and he had that ellipsis moment. But we see we see Wyndham all lit up at night and it's a really cool shot, you know, just beyond the walls of Midland or uh, of Wyndham. Yeah. Anyway, we're in the mausoleum and they encounter their informant who I can't tell who knew or who didn't know that Charlotte was the informant. It looks like it was a surprise to Guts. I didn't know if it was a surprise to everybody else as well. Well, of course, I don't think Gus knew, but the others seem to be like Judo and yeah, Gus Judo seem seems to be pretty yeah. knowledgeable yeah. about it. Pippin looks skeptical. That's the only reason I really yeah. say it. But uh, you know, I've mentioned it before. I think it was way back in podcast too. But I think it's notice. I think it's notable that Charlotte recognizes uh, Casca uh, from before. Uh, yeah. But of course, she misinterprets who she was. She thought she was a, a man. Uh, she didn't realize she was a woman, is what she says, and now she does. It's, it's because she had sex. That's why. And uh, Gus kind of comments on. He kind of makes fun of. <laughs> he's just, yeah, he just is like, yeah, he's the dumb jerky boyfriend in this instance who's joking around with Judo. <laughs> who Judo is sort of game, but at the same time, it's like, oh man, we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. <laughs> like he knows mm-hmm. better. <laughs> and she casually just bashes him in the face with a lantern. It's it's good stuff. It's good. <laughs> You know, friend stuff, stuff, people, things friends do to each other kind of stuff. Well, it's also funny. I mean, in the earlier shot when Casca had to, you know, grab him by the back of the head and push him down. You know, right, right. How, you know. I said it earlier, but uh, Wyndham's architecture, I, I like these buttresses we see uh, all across the whole the area they're walking in. <clears throat> yeah. Makes you uh, long for the city that could have been, but oh well, it's uh, it's gone now. 
Um, Casca's throughout this whole sequence, Casca's looking at Charlotte in a, in a unique way. And I'm probably not going to word this whole thing as good as, I don't know, the Flora cast probably would, but it seems to me that she's having not, I mean, yet jealousy is the easy way to describe it, but I, I think it's really, it's the after effects of a relationship that was and is no longer, you know, it's, it's. She, her relationship with Griffith has changed. Her relationship with Guts has changed. But there's a part of her that is still attached to Griffith. And, and, and here's the woman that, I mean, ultimately Griffith, you know, you can say chose or is that it, it is Griffith's Griffith's woman that she's coming into contact with and has to collude with. And she's uncomfortable and with that. stood between her. Yeah. yeah. And she's, she's having to work with that uh, uh, while being a leader, while knowing that this is the princess of the kingdom. So there's a lot on her plate and – uh, she gets she gets a little reflective about that throughout the whole thing. There's several moments of this distracting her and Guts has to kind of keep her uh, back on task. Sorry, I lost my place. I'm writing a note down. Because I was kind of ad-libbing for a second there. Well, I think you described everything pretty well. I was actually waiting for an interjection, but no, I don't know about that. So. Well, yeah, I I'll, mean... I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the Flora cast to cover this ground and then I'll, I'll weigh in. <laughs> Oh, I think uh, I think you you said it pretty well. Casca's confused yeah. about her feelings. Like she she's still you know Jose. It's not like she doesn't review Griffiths like she used to. But yeah, her feelings have changed. Situation has changed, and at the same time, she's still a bit you know. Uh, yeah, I think jealous could be the word, or at least you know apprehensive about Charlotte and reflect. She reflects on on everything on Griffiths' choice mm-hmm. and the fact Charlotte was necessary for him. You know as it's not like he he chose her because he loves her or anything like that. He he's just you know moving up the stairs, you know, using yeah. Charlotte. So it's I think it's a it's a pretty complicated thing, and it might also be a case of reflecting on how she was deluded, maybe to think of Griffiths as a potential partner at some point because of the way he, he she is, yeah. you know. And she and she well, knows who he is because, like, she complained to Gus that you know he was selfish like Griffiths. So she knows who Griffiths is deep down. She knows he's not uh, he's not necessarily a good guy, you know. Right. And I think it's also hard for her to see Charlotte sort of fawning over him, you know, in her. You know, descriptions of, you know, oh, he'll be fine. You know, it's, it'll be, you know, he's so tough. He'll have the strength to, you know, get through this and everything. And it's a nice moment when Guts comes over and, you know, puts his arm around her and, you know, sort of kids around with her. But she really yeah. does appreciate it and grabs his cape there at the end, you know, and he, yeah. he appreciates that. It's nice. And I think, yeah. but I mean, it's good now, but I mean, they also have some jealous moments coming up so before, a lot before, going on. before that happens uh judo is very blunt and asks what happened a year ago to charlotte because uh you know it, it gives it gives them an in, uh, some insight that they may yeah. have heard rumors but the actual actions of that night were sworn to secrecy by the guards so it's it's neat that we get to see this reveal because charlotte tells them that charlotte or that griffith was in her chambers and then you see this panel of casca looking yeah. you know shocked at it but she probably maybe put two and two together. You know, what would turn the king against Griffith so quickly like that? It makes some sense. She probably had some kind of idea of it. But it's also, you know, to consider that the Falcons were in the dark on this issue. This, this huge betrayal of the country that they'd saved from the brink of war, uh, suddenly turning on them in a day and just to ruminate on why for a year without an answer, you know, <laughs> had to be yeah. quite a predicament. What about the tower? What does uh, what do you guys think think about it? 
Looks like a tower. I mean, on top, it's nothing special, but the inside is a hell of a... Well, a of a yeah. No, like no, a I... hell of a locale. I didn't write anything down about it, but I, I, the, the design has always been rather unique to me. Uh, are, those are, like, eyes going around it. Uh, those are obviously, like, arrow points or something like that, but um, yeah. I don't know. Is that part of the design, or is that part of a strategy thing? What's always been interesting to me is the stairs, the way uh, they break off mm-hmm. into, you know, sort of opposing uh, sides and it creates this sort of what looks like a a diamond, you know, uh, look or not quite a diamond. But uh, it's just yeah. an interesting, you know, way up that it would be mm-hmm. it would be hard to infiltrate, too. It would actually be good defensively. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it's just a knight's design. Is it is it just, is it perspective or is it tilted a little bit to the right? Well, I think it's perspective. Okay. The reason I ask is because the foundation is a little, oh, I don't know, fragile. You know, the thing it's built on is a giant gaping hole in the. Yeah, it could, <laughs> it could be, and, it, and it's also old. You know, like you know, yeah. Yeah. the fact it's old, the masonry. Like you can, you can see the bricks. You know, and a lot of the parts of it. I think that's supposed to be like. Yeah, it's you know, even, some of the. It's not even bricks; it's stones. You know, it's yeah. like you know. Oh uh, yeah, sure. Un- uneven shape. So this thing is like, like Charlotte comments on it on the fact it's very old. You know, so. Also, we see the moon in there, so yeah. uh, we get a little bit of perspective on the timing of it all. A couple of days before the eclipse, I would guess. Shock! The eclipse is coming. Uh, Judo is suggesting about how to progress, and he he offers that they could take her as a hostage. Uh, yeah, Charlotte as a hostage, which Casca initially has a problem with, but it is a, a logical thing to do. Mm-hmm. And Char- uh, Charlotte then volunteers herself uh, to to make whatever happens happen. I find it interesting that it's Judo who proposes it and, you know, it also shows how it's another aspect to his character who's always sympathetic and everything like that. But that shows a dimension of him where he's very cold and he, he essentially like he wouldn't mind. Would he hesitate to kill the princess or something like that? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like he's very faithful to people he considers his comrades, but like, yeah, in a case like that, he has he's no also very practical. Yeah, yeah, pragmatic. Where it's like you know, if it's us or them, and we have to put the princess's life, you know, you know, basically have hold it for ransom, you know, like let us go or we're going to kill her. What do you, you know, kill her if necessary? Yeah, for so, a tactical advantage. That makes me think like he's not he's the kind of guy that would be a good riding man to a villain, you know. Like, would he have minded, you know, killing, you know, Julius or Adonis or something like that? I'm not sure. Actually, when you think back to it, I'm not sure. This is the kind of guy that, you know, he doesn't ask too many questions. I don't know. Well, also, it's interesting about the way he's convincing Casca is that he uses her feelings against her to, to, <laughs> to, to, to convince her, basically, saying, after all, that way she could be together with her beloved Griffith. And she gives her pause, like, oh, I don't want that, though. <laughs> Twist the knife. Yeah. yeah. So like, oh, by the way, you know, I'm hurting a little too over here. <laughs> so and why don't you, why don't you eat it? <laughs> but, uh, no, it's interesting because I mean, it is sort of, he is like in some ways, even though he's a, also a very nice guy and intelligent guy. And he sort of described himself that way to Guts before. Like he is kind of Griffith light, you know, where he, he was, he's good at a lot of things, but he's, you know, Griffith is sort of the best at a lot of things. And that's why he came to his side. Yeah. Uh, what I like about this next part is that Casca uh, explains in, in very well, uh, full detail why it would be a bad plan to take the, the princess. It shows that she has thought about this, or at least is quick enough to realize the tactical implications and the strategic implications of taking a princess hostage and what that can mean for the Falcons moving forward. 
you know, it kind of it gives us an uh, insight into into her mind, and it would be great. Uh, I look forward to seeing that you know her back and fully restored, and what that kind of mind could offer the team as well. Basically, uh, if they took Charlotte and something happened to Charlotte, then the Falcons wouldn't just be the guys that infiltrated and took Griffith, the, the, the guys that ended up killing the princess. You know, it would be a completely yeah, or different... Kidnapping her or, yeah, kidnapping or... It's a whole different... Yeah. yeah. It would utterly but ruin I mean, the reputation. As we sort of know, I don't know if Casca realizes it, but yeah, there's no going back anyway. <laughs> there is sort of no salvaging it, but I guess her, her idea is that there'd be nowhere they could run sure. at that point. Yeah. I, I think she actually makes a very good point. It's very sound, you know, but, uh, yeah, in any case, it's doubtful the king would have let them go. Sure. But she, but she doesn't know that. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> uh, eventually, Casca relents and lets that be the plan that Charlotte's a foe hostage, even though she's there at her own will, obviously. Uh, what I like about this next panel is Guts looking like bored, saying we're wasting time on this crap. I, I would, I need to get a screenshot of that, and just so I can post that to, to make fun of people <laughs> that complain about the pace of the series. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, man, we're going really slow, guys. We are uh, less than a third through. It's just really dense material. I mean, when we were in the second episode of this uh, volume, I felt like we were halfway through, but then I was like, oh, wait a minute, we're not even like, yeah, to the third end. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just how it moves. Casca uh, then looks, uh, and she kind of draws Guts' attention away for a moment and says that she feels like a horrible woman for doing this because even though she considered all the implications, truly what she wanted to do was stymie Charlotte's attempts to rejoin with Griffith, and she feels selfish, or she feels like she's being selfish but Guts, of course, reminds her that she's uh, being a woman and uh, being making all this personal. And even she said at the outset of this mission that when you can't be personal about this, we have to just get in and do our stuff and leave our personal feelings out of it. But what's interesting about this scene is that, you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure how to word it properly, but Guts is a little rough with her. Guts is a little rough with her feelings in this in this small instance. Uh he said it's not time to be talking about this kind of stuff right now. And it, it, it gets the attention of the whole group because it says it so loudly. And she apologizes. But um, I think Guts is beginning to feel the weight of basically human and complicated relationships. Uh, these things aren't something – it's not something he's used to dealing with and particularly not on such a critical mission. And so I think we see a little bit of that angst here on this, pay, on this page and then on the next page. Yeah, and there's also the fact that – I think Casca is very honest about what she feels and like I think she's even probably even too harsh on herself, you know, like she goes to Gus right away and tell him right away how she feels about, you know, she she might be, uh, you know, a hypocrite and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I think also very simply it might hurt Gus's own feelings like, you know, that he has for her to know that she's still, you know, uh, you sure. know what's uh, there. Taken up with this kind of stuff, you know, about Griffiths and the princess and that kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, it's it's very, it's uh, essentially. When Gus, after that, thinks that he's also, you know, still, how to say, you know, he's in, he's in that case as well, thinking about Griffiths and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, you, you said it a little better than I did, and, and and I meant to draw attention to a panel that I forgot during my talk, but that Casca actually realizes that she may have given Guts the wrong idea that yeah. you know, she says, what have I done in a, in a thought panel to herself, as if basically saying, does he think that I'm still in love with Griffith? So, you know, it's clear that basically the love triangle is hitting, you know, the rope right now, so. Yeah, that's the thing, is that, yeah, it's pretty, pretty much... I mean, I don't think there's much of a love triangle in the series, but well, it, there's the effects of a love triangle, you know. Yeah, that's that's the point here is some kind of like the crystallization of it, you know, right. like these, these pages, and uh, yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, well, it's it's just pretty much what we said earlier, and I think it's uh, all very complicated because of what Casca feels, you know, regarding Charlotte's wish to be with Griffith, what she feels towards Guts, what Gus feels towards Casca, and what he also feels towards Griffiths and, you know, what happened because of him. So, or at least what, you know, Griffiths might perceive was because of him. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> all these things, it's a very complex situation from the, you know, uh, relationship point of view. And I find it interesting that Mura bothered to go in depth with that kind of stuff, you know. So, because at, the, at its heart, Bazak is a sane story, but, you know, it's not like it necessarily should have that kind of stuff. It could have been a lot more simple. It could have been a lot more st- straightforward with just Casca. Oh, you know, fuck Griffiths. I'm in love with Gus. I can't stop. I don't care anymore. And, uh, Gus being the same and everything could have been very simple. But Mira went through the pain of making it complicated because that's how it is in real life as well. Yeah. No, I think, I think you're right. And I, I think adding the layer here of, of personal feelings, that's the whole point. That's the, that's the uh, story structure wise. The timing of Guts and Casca joining and then this mission happening, I think that's all, of course, is intentional because it's, it's adding to the, the, the dynamics of this mission and making it more yeah. difficult because everyone's feelings are involved. I think it's all. And, and it's, there's also, especially adding to that, you could also say even Judo's feeling come into play because yeah. he's also being a fucking hypocrite. The way he talks to Casca about it, the way he says about Charlotte, even that might be a, some petty way to, you know, make it painful for her. Or, you know, so I think I, it's, uh, I think he was just getting his way in that particular instance, personally. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree with that. I also think that's, you know, he didn't necessarily add, uh, uh, some kind of, let's say, other intentions behind, but yeah, it's still like there's many, many people's, you know, emotions, let's say, catalyzed in that moment. And we actually get more of that later on as Griffiths returns to the Falcons and everybody gets crazy as a scene with Carcass, but. Right. Just for another time, but yeah, yeah we'll, we'll get there. This is a my point is that this is a part of the series where a lot of people's emotions are being considered and how to say uh, put forward, you know, put on display in a very raw way. Sure, <laughs> we're lagging behind in terms of progress, so I'm going to kind of speed it up. If you, if you guys want me to slow down, if you guys have things you want to say, please interject. So, <clears throat> Judo pulls a, a technique here. He said in Volume 8 that he was never good at any particular thing. This is pretty fucking impressive. Killing two guys with <laughs> yeah. two knives in the same movement at the same time. Yeah. Eh, I mean, that's that's no slouch. Uh, that's a pretty sweet move he pulled. Well, I think we could say that was his specialty. The, the knife swing thing. Oh, like, oh, sure. Yeah, he might not be a Bakiraka, but yeah, he was pretty good at his shit. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, he ends up taking out a Bakiraka with that same yeah. skill. So Hell puts yeah. him on the same level, if not higher. Using puck logic. Anyway, um, 
we have this we go back to the scene of the uh, encamped falcons those that were wounded or had to stay behind for other reasons i think it's uh yeah it's this troop ultimately gets completely decimated uh by yeah. apostles so yeah. we never see any of these guys except for Griff or Rickert ever again. I mean, why do I do that all the time? Rickert ever again. Rickert goes out to fetch water and he sees light on the horizon reflecting off the water. And he initially thinks it's a, an elf. A fairy. Uh, yeah. Right. And she, uh, Miss Vashin obviously, and she flies over him. And, uh, what I like about this is that this whole scene, the way the scene progresses is that Rickert's running back. Um, and then all he sees is, is just darkness. It's just everything's in, in flooded and just uh, engulfed in darkness. And all he sees is the, is the campfires with uh, no bodies around. And, of course, we have this magnificent scene where uh, the Count is uh, dangling the corpse of one of the Falcons over him. Uh, his, yeah. his face emerges from the darkness, lit by, I'm assuming, the fog that emits from an, an apostle is what looks like it's happening. Well, I think it's one of the fires. It's, oh, uh, is it? Yeah, he's, yeah, yeah he's he's Oh, yeah, fire. we see it in the next page, yeah. The full, super creepy two-page spread of the count and uh, lit by the flames. Yeah, this so it's is all... like full horror comic right here. Yeah, it's totally insane. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> we also see that uh, Roisin has arrived with her... Uh, guardians. Guardians. So does she travel with her pseudo-apostles, I guess? I guess she I think, did. I think only the guardians. Like okay. she didn't, yeah. she didn't bring the, her children with her, but yeah, these, you know, she did. Yeah. You know, I actually find it interesting that first, this is a preview of what's to come after the eclipse. So again, it's a very thoughtful of, you know, Mura actually mixes old apostles with new ones, you know, in a way that makes it feel very natural and organic, you know, you know, yeah. all around. So I like that. And, uh, you know, going back to what you said before, you know, from the point of view of a new, a new reader. It's the first time you see, you know, Rochin, you, you're like, you know, like what the fuck, man, you know? Yeah, it's a weird, you know, you wouldn't think that's an apostle by the look of her. It looks yeah. dramatically different than any apostle we've seen thus far. Admittedly, we've only seen like two, but still, uh, it kind of opens the horizon for what you can expect from apostles. Yeah. And of course, the fucking badass arrives. That's it. That's all I have to say. <laughs> the yeah. night, that's all. Skull Knight is the best. Skull Knight is the best. Yeah. I like how, um, for, first of all, what I like about Before a Skull Knight Arrives, uh, it reinforces something I like to bring up as my, often as I can, is that Rickert can't move. He, he's trembling and, and can't move in the, in the presence of an apostle. Strictly and you know, you, fear. Yeah, you can, you can say it's simply fear at being pre- uh, presented with the unknown, or there could be something supernatural happening, because we see this happen a lot uh, when humans are in yeah. the presence of an apostle. I think there's some kind of extra thing happening as a result of that. But anyway, there's no confirmation one way or the other, but yeah, Skull Knight arrives literally riding up all of the perspective on this shot with Rickert looking tiny in the foreground and Skull Knight looking huge in the background, the, the contours that are present here with the Cape and the, the, the horse's head, Oh, it looks like super. I mean, what a fucking badass! It's one of the coolest shots. Yeah, especially like yeah, even the that. the front of his horse's, you know, sort of armor there looks like the wings are spreading. You know. Yeah. Also, the the, the apostles immediately react uh, and are stopped short, yeah. and he draws his sword. What I love about this next panel when he tells them to withdraw or to retreat <laughs> the, one. 
It's that she looks pissed, and then the this the count just looks back like, "Oh, what do we do?" And she just she doesn't want to acknowledge it, but yeah, they're leaving, you know. And I like how she sticks her tongue out. If that's what you were getting to, no, no. But whenever he draws a sword and tells him to withdraw, his 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 face takes up the whole panel, and it looks oh, it's yeah. very it's very intensely drawn. It's a way that Miura uses to. It's a technique Miura uses to convey emotion when. It's an unanimated face, you know. It's yeah. a, it's a very effective. Yeah. He does it with a number of in a number of different times with Skull Knight, but it's uh, it's very effective. And you know what I like about it is that he doesn't actually bother to kill them. He just tells them to, well, to, to go and they go. You know. Yeah, and they just yeah. know not to not to mess with him. Yeah. It's just like there isn't any question. There isn't usually apostles. You know, like they're not afraid of guts. Yeah, you know, even when they've heard all he's done, you know, they still don't give him any respect. But you know, here they just immediately do withdraw, and just that look on the the count's face is yeah. sort of like, Ooh, I don't know, and he's looking back around like, "Are we? Yeah, yeah, we're going. Okay, <laughs> good." I actually considered why he didn't. Uh... Was it because? Yeah, I thought about that too. I was about to say before you pointed it out, sort of like, you know, why didn't he just kill all of them? You know, I think it's because I think it's because it needs to happen. No, no, I, I think it's simply, I, I don't think he could guarantee Rickert's safety and killing yeah. all of them and the Guardians all at once. There's a, there's yeah. a chance that Rickert might not have made it. Actually, that's my that's my feeling anyway. My take on it is that uh, he thought that, you know, acting now would jeopard, you know, put his actions, you know, during the occultation ceremony in jeopardy. Like, you know, he's got one shot in these oh, kinds of true. events. True. And so, like, you start messing up with things now. You're gonna, you know, you, you're not getting another chance, you know, like that's offsetting the whole thing and realigning it. So yeah, I, I think that's why he did it. And there's a, I guess a difference between, you know, like, I don't, we don't know obviously what the connection between, you know, all apostles. I mean, I, you imagine that the God Hand can feel it because of the connection to the vortex, you know, when yeah. apostles are killed. So sending them scurrying away versus, you know, slaughtering a whole group of them. Mm. Could you know reverberate much more strongly and sort of give the warning that oh yeah here he comes. And there's there's one more thing I want to say about this is that I think it's worth noting, especially now with what's going on uh, right now in Berserk, you know, in, with the current episodes, that Rickert only lived because the Skull Knight intervened. So it you know it's not any different from Gus and Casca. Without mm. him, he would be dead. So he's also a survivor that was not meant to be. Like originally, you know, so yeah. I think it's important to keep that in mind when you, you see the current events because, you know, like Griffiths might be all like, oh, well, you know, you're alive, you're not branded, welcome back. But, uh, in the grand, you know, your buddies were going to eat me, you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, really. <laughs> in, in the, in, in the grand scheme of things, like, yeah, I mean, the Count and Roshin are dead, but that's thanks to Gus. Otherwise, he might have seen them in the round. Oh, hi, hey there. I remember you. I did. You know, God, yeah, well, Guts really did, you know, Griffith a favor by killing all of these particular apostles. So we're going to be like, hey, you're hanging out with these guys. What the hell? <laughs> like, this really brings it home. But, yeah, so it's a little more abstract anyway for him. There's something very ominous about the way uh, we leave Rickert here, just surrounded by darkness and flames, wondering why this happened, what, you know, trying to rationalize what just happened. He was just surrounded by supernatural creatures Saved by someone who looks like some kind of supervillain, you know. But he's actually yeah. left with a ball of the corpses oh, of his sure. comrades. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty horrifying. That's Very a lot tra- of that's a lot of swords he's gonna have to make after that thing. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Very traumatic. But uh what I like about that, I mean, 
you can you can read this wordless panel as 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 often as you want, but Skull Knight pauses on the tree for a moment. Kind of, it looks like he's looking back to me. The way the way the lighting on is on is uh, emitting from his eye like that. It's like he's considering the condition that Rickert's been left in, or or maybe even uh, thinking back to something that happened to him. I don't know. It's, it's utterly open to speculation. Well, yeah, well, I think you. It was uh, a pretty awful camping it. trip that he went on. <laughs> did not. Yeah, work I know. Out. I know it's off the deep end, but uh, we'll just move on. But uh, well, the way I've got something that's a little less off the deep end, but it's interesting to consider. Do you think that Miro was thinking far enough ahead, as we just sort of referenced? You know, Griffith's meeting with Rickard that were on the eve of that he purposefully used apostles that he knew were already going to be killed by guts and that he was obviously planning, you know, the lost children arc at this time, probably it was in his head. Yeah. You know, did he use them on, did he make the apostles that attack Rickert purposefully ones that were not going to be around when Griffith, you know, Hmm. when, when they could meet again someday, did he just take that out of the equation for whatever purpose he has for Rickert and Griffith going forward? I actually think it's possible, but maybe not, maybe not thinking that far. You know, like, yeah, you know, using the count and, and rushing. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it wasn't. I mean, he definitely, was... he definitely used them just at this point as a nod to their presence earlier and what was just coming around the corner. But yeah. was he also thinking about like, yeah, I also, these guys can't be around for when I, you know, when I do volume, you know, like getting up to, when we're getting to 40 and I'm going to have Ricker, you know, hanging out with Griffith on a regular basis. I think it was just coincidence. It just worked out that way personally, but it's possible that he had considered well, that he wanted to have expendable apostles. Basically. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's coincidence, but it's more some things that he probably like, you know, it, it came up, it was convenient, but otherwise he would have been, it would have been arranged one way or the other. I, I don't think yeah. he played, uh, I, I don't think he planned it like 20 volumes in advance or 20 sure. or more. Uh, the way Skull Knight leaves, bouncing off a tree, is it going up? What, I don't know what to make of that, other than he travels from tree to tree like some kind of horse monkey. I don't know what to make of the way he travels. <laughs> I think they're just showing that, you know, he's sort of, he's literally above the, the tree line, you know, and he, then sure. he goes even higher. He just seems to sort of fly at that point. Well, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Takes off. Once in a young animal comment, uh, Mira said, the Skull Knight is one of these characters that just flies for no reason. <laughs> you <know? laughs> like, you know, he was like, just, yeah, well, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I think it's just, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just, of course it was a humorous grant, but. Yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily flying. Maybe like doing some kind of super jump, and yeah. Oh, it's but, like uh, more like Superman or the Hulk in this regard. Then I was gonna say like Doomsday also does that. Doesn't fly; yeah. he jumps really far. Yeah, well, that's what Superman did also back in. The oh day. yeah, right. Early just Superman. jump over a tall building. Yeah, right. Of course. So yeah, I think it's just it just shows that he's got a super horse and he can travel like that. But uh, yeah, I'm not sure there's much of a, of a point behind that. Yeah, there's not much we can learn from it either way. It's just a very enigmatic way to it doesn't, end in the scene. It doesn't really matter what it is specifically. It just it's all to the same point that he is not on the same plane as you know everybody sure. else. Yeah, he's just a superhuman warrior. The gems with the moon in the background. <laughs> we'll move <laughs> on. Um, we are descending down the Tower of Rebirth and. Casca, sorry, Charlotte becomes fatigued, and so Guts takes her up on his back, and Casca has a little moment of pause, goes, now this woman's working up here, her man. Yeah. 
first Griffiths. Now you're fucking my man. You f- yeah. I fucking kill you, bitch. And it would, you know, it wouldn't. I wouldn't even bother making the joke, but Mira draws attention to it twice in on two pages. You know. Yeah, she's, she's looking back, sort of. You know, and yeah. then she looks away when Guts notices her. Yeah. And Guts is sort of like, uh, oh, yeah. this is gonna cost me. <laughs> like, we've all know. we've all been there. Yeah. We've all had that I didn't even before. I didn't even do anything, and I'm in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's the look. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> well, it's especially funny is that he notices right away that she's looking back. Like, you know, he knows, it's like, the, it's the look of someone who knows he's done something bad. <laughs> so I think it's a, it's a great uh, relationship dynamic, you know, like the fact, you know, mm, ah! <laughs> well, the, um, yeah, at first it's just funny because Casca, first she has this sort of like sad little look on her face and then later it's the, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the look yeah. away. Uh, they begin talking about how far the hole goes. And so Charlotte opens up about things that she learned from her history teacher uh, growing up about this tower and the history behind it. What's at the bottom of it. She said it was built on a hole or a chasm that opened up a thousand years ago uh, during the time of uh, Emperor Geyseric, who uh, a thousand years ago had. Wait, why am I retelling Geyseric? Why yeah. everyone knows? Because you fuck fucking Geyseric love Geyseric. Yeah, stories. I mean, that's, you why, just... that's why you like Volantine. Who's, like who's listening to this podcast and doesn't you know? You don't like. You don't like the other bullshit. You just like this. Well, you know what? Since <laughs> everyone already knows it, I, I think this part's boring. Let's just skip well, it. Let's I just mean, skip <laughs> Geyseric. Yeah, yeah. Geyseric. Uh, I'll just I'll, I'll touch on my salient points here. Uh, that <laughs> that. Twice, Mira is noting a uh, confluence of events here. One, that the way Geyseric appears out of nowhere and changes the world is similar to Griffith. And also that um, the way the condition of the world was, that it was engulfed in warfare, was similar to today's time. So it's as if the time of Geyseric's rise to power was similar to what it was now. And so I, I think it's significant that Falcone appeared around the same time and precipitated by Geyseric's empire as well. So we're seeing some recurrence of events here and we don't know the yeah. significance of those or the, the actual connection there. But I think it's important that Mira draws two lines of parallel here to underscore yeah. the relevance there. Although it should be said and that the, the comparison of the two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then of course, uh, yeah, we hear about the skull mask for the first time in guts immediately puts it together to his credit. I mean, he's probably seen a lot of skulls and skull imagery actually in his life, you know, relatively speaking. Oh, a helmet a pretty shaped int- like a skull is pretty unique. Though. Yeah. Well, but skull Knight also looks like it's sort of, I mean, it's a helmet, but it also is his face, <laughs> you know, sure. as far as we know. So, I mean, I thought it was a pretty good intuitive leap and there's, you know, there's not really any evidence to connect them. I mean, it's still insane, the idea that, like, I wonder if the skull mask guy I saw, you know, the other day is this thousand-year-old emperor, you know. Well, like, you, know you know, but it's, the, a, it's a good leap on his part. At the same time, you know, like, you've got this, you know, like, ghostly knight, you know, uh, with, yeah. a, with a skull helmet. I don't know. It feels like, yeah. I'm not, you know. I'm I don't not, think it's that far of a leap. I think. It's no, a, I'm saying it's a it's a good intuitive leap. Like it's something sure. you know. He just as yeah. soon as he heard it, you know, he felt it. You know, it felt it rang true to him. But I mean, it's not any. It's not. I I feel like it's something more that he's feeling in the scene than he's actively thinking. Hmm, skull mask. I think you know. I yeah. just saw a guy with a skull. It just you know. Yeah. Okay. I I especially like the way Mira does it with his eyes and then yeah. the mm-hmm. little box in white. You know. Yeah, to see his eye, that meant, that means a lot to me, man. That we have a little bit uh, of him as a man. It's just fucking amazing. Um, yeah, I've zoomed in on that eye and it looks pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Also, uh, one of the other things I wanted to comment on was the look of his armor. Super ornate, filled, dense with imagery and uh, animals, monsters, motifs, just all over the place. And it makes you wonder the state of the world at this time. Uh, do you guys think that a thousand years ago the world was filled with the same kind of monsters we're seeing now? Was it just like it is now? Well, you know, I, I said before to you uh, personally, but I think... I, th- I think uh, fantasy was much more prevalent, and uh, yeah. it's made it's made clear through several points of the story, even by you know flora later on that kind of stuff. I'm not. I don't think it was necessarily as extreme as it is now. Like with pretty much monsters everywhere and killing everything. But yeah, I think it was pretty prevalent. I think maybe uh, fantasia, the, the current state of fantasia, was uh, how to say. I think it might be in overdrive because of how it was, you know, done. Kanishka mm-hmm. taking up, you know, all that mass of evil and bring it to the world at once. But yeah, I think it was, uh, probably, yeah, there were definitely monster and story and yes, yeah, more ref- reflects that. The only other nerdy point I have to note on these, you know, super important two pages is that the guys in the background all carry spears and, uh, it made me think about mm-hmm. the guys outside of Falcone's walls having, also having spears. But of course, you know, lots of people have spears. What's people interesting- might- Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, what's also interesting uh, when you look at the you know page of the warring, the first page, yeah. you see guys with horn helmets, you know, fighting other guys, and yeah, it's uh, it's all reflect. It reflects to the the period of the Greco-Roman Empire, you know, fighting all the tribes and that kind of stuff, and even these buildings in the background, you know, are some kind of, you know, from that era, from other places, so. I don't know if this, these are some kind of ziggurath, you know, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, all of that is, you know, pretty, how to say, I think it grounds this history, you know, in a way similar to the War of Berserk right now is kind of medieval in inspiration. And that time is, you know, uh, Greco-Roman. Even though the more gatherings were, is not really from that time. But yeah, the thing, and the spikes also got on with that because they used a lot, a lot of spearmen at the time. So yeah, I think it's very, it's all conducive to that. Right. So yeah, so, these guys, you know, we see, you know, that, uh, we see guys are fighting and we see dead. They actually, uh, remind me visually of the former occupants of France, hmm. the Gauls, you know, uh, which were defeated by the Roman Empire. Cool. Yeah, that's it. Uh, after Charlotte's bit and after Guts thinks of Skull Knight, uh, Judo chimes in and basically we'd gotten the historical take on uh, Guy Zarek and Judo chimes in with kind of the mythical take. Basically, Let's see what the the low people believe. Yeah, pretty much. The high and low versions of the story uh, and yeah. that basically, you know, the, the God became angry with uh, the emperor laboring the people to death and living in luxury and sent five or four angels to decimate the city. And then it was swallowed within a day. Casca chimes in saying, were there four of them? You know, so there's a bit of a discrepancy on the actual details of the bullshit uh, myth. But uh, Charlotte reinforces it saying that it was, it, it actually did happen. Something like that. Even though as crazy as it sounds, the entire city was swallowed and he left no heirs. But those that somehow uh, he left no heirs, but those of Midland's line bear his blood. Now, do you oh, guys he could think, have had a brother, or cousin? Sure, yeah, I guess. 
<laughs> Do you guys think that's just merely there to strengthen Midland's line to say that they have oh, some heritage? Of course, yeah, the, but of no, course but, they have a connection. Of, but my, I guess my point is, do you think that's actually, the beginning and end of the connection, or are we going to see that have a point further on? Actually, yeah, uh, I think there might be a point to it. Okay. There might be uh, something, you know, like there might be a connection. It's not, it's you, not mean, sure you know thing. where uh, Skull Knight shows up to Falco and says, get your damn dirty hands off my great, 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 great grandniece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah, I, I don't know about that, but yeah, I, I think there might be, there might be a connection to, to that uh, somewhere or another. But yeah, probably, you know, like in a, in a case like that, every, where, where a big empire is split up, uh, every reigning, you know, family of uh, each part is going to say they are the true heirs and they are the true. Sure. Uh, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a political point to it, obviously. I kind of just meant if there was a story point to it as well. That's all. I mean, yeah, I, I think it definitely could come into play. It just depends on how far Mira takes Skull Knight and the Gazeric reveal. And mm-hmm. if that's going to actually become, if that's going to go from being sort of passive information in the background that's kind of really cool. To something that's yeah, like you were saying, something that's an active point for the plot. Yeah, and there's also uh, you know from a more general point of view, uh, causality you know aspect that there was once an emperor you know reigning on on that place, and uh, it's funny that Griffiths would have as his queen. Uh, a woman who was related to that man, you know, in a city that is similar to the city that man had at the time. So it's some kind of, you know, a grain, you know, the spiral of things, you know, repeating itself, but in a different way. So, hmm. yeah, I think it might be interesting. I mean, there's a connection in that way. Yeah, from that point of view, it's already, yeah, it is sort of already an interesting, you know, important plot point. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it seems, that seems like such an ephemeral thing, though, that, five to ten people realize that's the case though and and while it is a connection i wonder if that's that's all it's going to be i don't i don't have an answer to this i don't have a but here's my idea i don't i just i'm just wondering really now that mira's put that out there if he had a, a, an idea to reconnect it but yeah. we don't know so we'll we'll move and, move on and you know even when it comes to moonlight boy's relationship with griffiths and his parents you know people don't get it so sure yeah that's so true. yeah i mean yeah but that's that, not, that's a case where the reveal. I don't think the reveal is meant to be formalized yet. I think we're just no, ahead no, of, of the curve. Not. But my point yeah. is, you, you say only five to ten people could get this. But I mean, even much more obvious stuff, some people don't get. So sure, we should not let that stop us. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we have to worth. It's worth noting that Casco drops the torch, and uh, the viewers, the readers, get a little more uh, of a look at what's the very yeah. bottom of the entire. That there really is, you know, and that's after Judo makes the, you know, sort of the dumb joke about ghosts and holds the lantern to his face. Yeah, Charlotte, yeah. you know, squeals. Casca drops the torch, and then it's like, well, yeah, it is all real. We've, <laughs> and there we've is talk- reason to fear. Is we've one- talk- that- Go ahead. I was just going to say, there's one thing about Midland. That reinforces uh, Charlotte her claim, you know, to the to the having a relationship with Geyser is a flag. You know, we, we actually see a shot of the flag, and it's true that Minsland's flag it, it's got the tower in the center, and so right. that's uh, you know that's not uh, innocuous. So yeah, it's uh, it's also another thing that you know the flag hints at the tower. It's a uh, you know it's a nice thing, a nice detail yeah. that was sort of in advance. I, I like that kind of stuff. Of course, that flag is now defunct. Yeah, of course. But you know, like I like the fact that when we first see it, it's maybe in Volume Five, I think. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it already refer- references, you know, the Toa that we get to in Volume 10. So I think it's pretty fucking cool, you know. The details on these bodies, it appears that they all died and mm-hmm. many of them died in different ways. It looks like some were burned to death and others were crushed to death by obviously the cataclysm, whatever happened to the city. Obviously, it looks like it, you know, it fell down the entire length of the, of the, of the chasm and, you know, was broken as a result of that. But also some of these bodies, the ones that bear the brands in particular, appear to be burned. I don't know how else to you make know, of that texture. Yeah, I think it might but just be, you know, dust and musty, rotten flesh, you know, like, mm. I don't know, some kind of, you know, of course, after a thousand years, it's hard to guess what skulls would look like. But, you know, some kind of mummification, you know, yeah. like when, when the flesh has somehow became become like that. So I think it's more an effect meant to be that than just burned. Well, I mean, the reason there's a discrepancy, though. Some are pure skeleton faces. Some are school, but uh, and yeah. others look like they have this texture on them. I don't know what to now describe it other than skin, or the rem- remnants of skin. Yeah, why it might also be that we don't see the others as close as closely, you know, when we get a closer shot. Okay. Uh, at least that's my point because, like you see, there's a shot of the torch, you know, in uh, the upper left panel of the page, and we don't see much of a detail on them. It's like could be in just normal skulls, but then we get the closer shot, and they're the mm-hmm. same skulls, but we see they have this texture, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've discussed this scene at length in other episodes as well, so we'll just move on, and assuming people have heard that stuff, and our thoughts on uh, the significance of this event. Uh, we get to the bottom of the tower. Guts is suspicious about someone following him, but thinks it's imagination. Obviously, it's the jailer. Cask is apprehensive about what they're about to find. And there's this interesting panel where she's uh, naked or at least appears to be naked. It's obviously meant to be an introspective shot. I just thought it was a little strange to show her without armor. Obviously she's thinking inside herself and that's just, it's depicting that, but uh, I don't know. It was a, I don't know. A strange choice. I thought um, Charlotte wants to be let down immediately to run to Griffith's cell and bang on it like an idiot. Uh, and they're all uh, wary of what they'll find. Guts is the one that uh, reassures Casca, who's trembling at the door, puts, puts his hand on her shoulder, and she uh, is able to get the courage to open up the door. I absolutely love, uh, as the this scene moves forward, how how dark it is, and then and they can't, they don't know anyone's in here at first. They and initially assume that maybe it's been moved, maybe it's empty. Like Charlotte says, I was sure he was at the lowest floor, and then Guts sees something in the corner of his eye, and it's the likely the glint of the helmet, I assume, that's the first thing that comes into the shot. Uh, and, they, and the episode ends with this just, like, really disturbing... Uh, the, the body of Griffith, the way it's uh, arranged... Is it looks just, like uh, a dead... It looks like a corpse, I mean... Yeah, yeah. it doesn't look like... It's a, it's a very unnaturally uh, arranged body. And but it's a pose of a body that's just laying down there, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, of course... Uh, Guts immediately comes in and, and holds him in his arms. And the the condition of his body, it did, I don't know, maybe it's that I'm getting older. It didn't bother me so much before, but to see his exposed ribs like that through the flesh, it's really gruesome. It's, it's difficult for me to look at, even knowing it's a work of fiction. It's just really uh, gruesome. I don't know what else to say it. Uh, Guts notes uh, all the the damage to his body, and uh, obviously this other than the superficial, you know, emaciated uh, he has his tendons have been ripped out. His tongue has been ripped out or cut out rather. Uh, he gets to bark at Casco, who's just trembling in fear. Uh, I think what they found for the keys, 
Mira does this thing where people have been talking about this for 20 years now, about why they don't show Griffith's face. There's this mysterious thing where Guts and Judo see the face when they take the mask off, but the viewers don't see it. And Guts tells Cass, barks at Casca to get away, and they put the thing back on while Guts says, you know, it can't be Griffith. This just can't be Griffith. What do you guys think about the the mask reveal or lack of a reveal? I mean, there's an obvious answer, and there's a, but there's yeah. no conclusive answer. Well, you know, I think it's pretty clear that he wants it to be left up to the, you know, reader's imagination so that it can, it can never be as horrible as, a, you know, a man can imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's a clear answer. And there's also another part is that, uh, how to say, Griffith's already, already depicted as being, you know, at his lowest point and, you know, maybe Mira doesn't want, uh, how to say, the reader to see his face in, in that, you know, in that way. Yep, that's kind of what I have always believed yeah. as well. Is that basically it's? It, I mean, it's almost like brand control that you want uh, people's image of Griffith to be this. You don't want it to see in its absolute worst. Yeah, even, even for, for a fictional character, I think that makes some sense narratively. But uh, yeah, and honestly, I also think it's just you know, it's a, it's a, it's very, it's much more clever to not show it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because Rather than yeah, like. You know, taking an established character's face like that and like, well, let's just mutilate it up, you know, like, you know, that would be weird to make this sort of, I don't know, a zombified looking Griffin. Yeah. You know, rather than just, yeah, doing it the way he handled it. Yeah, it was very sort of clever or it's almost like there's like an a void when you think of him at this point, you know, an absence of, you know, his face and his look and that, you know, that perfection that he was supposed to have and that he gets in overdrive when he comes back. Right. I think the helmet itself was a kind of torture. Uh, obviously, it was locked up for a reason. And, you know, I, I, I could be wrong, but it, it's like a makeshift helmet. It doesn't look like Griffith's actual helmet, the one that slid yeah. back. It's yeah. the one that was, that was devised for this as a kind of a special form of torture. Yeah. It's, uh, it's yeah, like a punishment. Like the man in the iron mask comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. But it's, I mean, it's not only would it weigh him down, someone that has barely any muscle function anymore. It would weigh him down and make him unable to move. But it also, it's like a punishment, uh, of a memory of his former life. You know, that that's, it's like a mockery of what he once was. That he has yeah, it's to, also, it's yeah. playing on his vanity, you know, mocking right, exactly. you know, how, you know, what he thought he was and that he, you know, his, how dare he, you know, his arrogance. Right. Of his crime. So it's, yeah, and it's also interesting, obviously, in this scene, the, the, one of the big moments for me, and I'm sure for everyone, is when he puts his, his hand around Gut's throat. Mm-hmm. And Judo is the only one that notices how horrifying, you know, he seems to actually be the only one to understand what this really signifies until Guts gives him, you know, that hug. And then Griffith, you know, impotently just puts his hand down on Guts, you know, because, yeah, there's he has no strength. It's it's, it's so much to be said there. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. try to be as quick as possible. I mean, Griffith, obviously, he has a malicious intent. That look in his eye is unmistakable. It's his falcon eye look. Yeah. But then Guts, mista- guess mis- Guts mistakes it as an embrace. And so he embraces yeah. Griffith. And it's an emotional time. He cries. When does Guts cry in the series? Like, what, yeah. three times ever? Yeah. And his tears fall down on Griffith's face and that and look is, in Griffith's you know, eye. Where it's and like, when, it's, or if it, you know, is it the tears bothering his eye or is he no. softening in that moment? You know, it's, you know, like, ah, it's, it's, a, a good, it's an interesting, it's an interesting way that it's just, it's all sort of up for, 
I look at you it know, as bitter, though. I think it's a bitter feeling he has. Just or it's sort to... of like motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, it's like I want to kill this guy instead. He's hogging me. And, you hey, know, bro. I, <laughs> like, I actually think even in the panel before when Griffith sees Guts crying, when mm. he puts his hand on top of Guts' hand, I think I don't think he's that clear cut. You know, I, I mean, I think his first reaction is to try to strangle Guts because he's still in that, you know. You know, Jose, insanity, insanity yeah. of his, but when but he, he does guts, notice him crying, yes. Yeah, when he sees Gus crying and he put his hand on top of his, I think it's also a way to show that, you know, like he can snap back to, you know, Jose, he can be reasonable, you know. I, I think it's complicated. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's so. complicated. Like he doesn't know if he hates Gus or if he, you know, just, you know, yeah, it's just, I think, I think he, he has trouble sorting out his feelings at that point. Yeah, these point. guys have a lot of problems with, you know, they care about each other, <laughs> but they don't know that the other one really cares about him. And, you know, this is, yeah, a lot of weird affirmations. Again, a little chat would have gone a long way with these two. <laughs> yeah, you know, a little open dialogue. Um, what happens next is again, one of my, was one of my favorite guts moments. Uh, the torturer locks them in the cell and, and gloats about his prize prisoner. The, the, and talks about how Griffith's skin and his, the muscle beneath was uh, one in a thousand. You know, he's gloating over what he's accomplished. Uh, thanks to the king, what a nice guy! He's going to be so happy that he delivered these people and along with the princess. And it's hey, it's, it's, it's it's one of two moments in the next coming coming pages where. The opponents think, oh, we got it wrapped up like a bow, and then Gus just utterly wrecks their shit and in like seconds. It just completely turns the tables in moments. And I think it's it's one of two instances where we're showing we're, we're seeing how Gus' power has gotten just so much so crazy during his time away. And maybe he could have accomplished this a year ago. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. But these these two feats, this and escaping Wyndham the way he does, it's implied that he's kind of reached superhuman levels at this point. Yeah, it's beyond it's point, beyond expectation. I mean, it's like the I, mean, I just think of you know sort of being able to he can take over any situation on a battlefield just by himself. Yeah. He is to you know killing people what LeBron James is to basketball, where you know they <laughs> they sort of think, well, we got these guys under control, and oh oh shit, you know, just when he stands up and he turns around, and he's got that sort of oh yeah that, that murderous look. shade over Absolute. his face. You know, it's a great yeah. look on look on his face. Are you the one? Yeah. Are you the one that did us to grip that look? Yeah, where it just, it just seems so innocent, the questioning, you know, he almost looks childlike, but you know, mm-hmm. you know what's coming. <laughs> yeah, spears the guy, holds him over the pit, uh, slap, cuts his tongue off. And, Gives uh, him a 10 second class in torture, <laughs> you know, basically yeah. like, okay, you like and to torture the people and cut their tongues out. He's choking on his blood and Gus says, I can't hear you speak clearly. Uh, that totally cold look. It's amazing. Drops him up. You know, as cool as that moment was, it was not nearly enough. It could have been way worse. It yeah. should have been way worse. The guy deserved way, so much worse than that. Yeah. He got off pretty easy, but, you know, cuts his own mission. Yeah, and just that look when he drops him into the pit and he's, yeah, when he says yeah. to him, speak clearly, and he's looking down on him. I talked about it earlier, but this this upcoming moment, it, again, it's one of those things where you can see how far Gretz has progressed as a warrior uh, in the years training. So, I mean, I'm, I really do think this is one of the best action sequences in the series, just as, as a kind of a show off time for Guts. Uh, and, you know, they're just basically meat puppets, these guys he's, he's, he's pounding through. <laughs> but um, they don't put up any resistance at all. No one does. Even the guy at the very end is zero resistance. But just uh, it, it's visually 
very interesting to watch the chaos happen and, and so quickly. Uh, particularly as the bodies fall and judo comments on the bloody rain, uh, and watching the faces of the guys and the, the, the atmosphere of battle change as they realize they're against a force of nature. It is this shot where, uh, <laughs> there's other soldiers seeing what's happening to people in front of them. <laughs> and then they're, they just look utterly terrified. They start running. You know the mer- the, the the guard leader, well, and the captain. Tells I love them the guard to, leader who looks like yeah. you know a Disney. He looks like the clock yeah. from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, it's just the, you know, it's just you couldn't pick a more overmatched kind of character. Yeah, like, they're they're basically clawing to get over the guy, and he's telling them to go back and stand their ground. Obviously, that's not going to happen. He should be. <laughs> who yeah. did the voice of? Uh, the, yeah, John Lovitz. If if they did a you know another anime adaptation oh, wow. with this character, he <laughs> should do the voice of this guard captain. Yeah, guys, uh, thanks for tuning in. That is as much time as we have uh, for now. We're going to finish up this volume uh, when we come back for the next episode talk. I think it's going to be in two weeks. So stay tuned for the rest of Volume Ten and Episode Fifty Two. Thanks again for listening. We do not have any. Uh, no one submitted any audio questions this time. That's too bad. But uh, keep it up. Maybe next time. I enjoy those. I think we had fun answering those questions. And so if you guys have a question for us, record it, send it over, short MP3. That's it. Really quick, easy to do. Well, guys, thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next time.